Hey, early adopters and super VIPs. If you have not done so yet, please help us out by pounding that subscribe button and rating and reviewing us on Apple iTunes. We've got so many new and awesome interviews coming up that you won't want to miss. And we want to make sure that this podcast grows and gets even more awesome guests than we already have. Please do so. And we really appreciate your support. Welcome to Buy and Build, the podcast about buying a business and building in public. Uncover the wins and losses as we renovate our business together. Come along for the ride. Now, here are your hosts of Buy and Build, Nicholas Scalp and Daryl Lim. Yo, what's going on? It's your boy here, Daryl, with the Buy and Build podcast with Nicholas Scalp, who's live from Hawaii. Lucky him. Today, we have a terrific guest. We have a one of a kind. He's the inventor of the hashtag head of West Coast Business Development for Republic, which is an inclusive fundraising platform that disrupts conventional venture capital. That's for all you founders looking for some capital. Number one product hunter on Product Hunt. He's pretty busy, so maybe you shouldn't email them. Email him unless you got something really great. Uh, speaker at TEDx, XSXW, Google I.O. speaker, Chris Messina. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode today, Chris. Right on, guys. Thanks for having me. That was a really long intro. I think I'm going to have to take a drink of water. Nick, I think you had uh, some other stuff that Chris has done that maybe you want to intro as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that totally misses out. You know, Chris, uh, I mean, from the technical side, like you kind of made Firefox a, a big part of what it is now, right? The growth side there. Uh, you kind of made co-working spaces a thing. From what I understand, there's you know, totally reinvented, like what conferences are. It, it's kind of crazy that <laughs> the span, it's not just in one field. It's kind of a wide dirge of like what you worked in. Yeah, that's a, a very accurate <laughs> point, actually. <laughs> so before we get into like all the details about your history, the hashtag and all that stuff, we really like to get to know our guests on the personal side of things. So, you know, Tell us about Chris. What does he like to do for fun when he's not inventing the hashtag, not product hunting? Uh, does he listen to certain music, uh, certain podcasts? What does he like to do? Well, I mean, I got to say like, like one, I, I, in general, I am quite like an infovore. So I just, I like to consume a lot of information and I'm constantly just trying to, I don't know if I would say I'm, I'm even trying, like sort of seeing and observing patterns kind of happens to me. And so it just happens in lots of different areas of my life. I would say that I've been, I feel like I'm in a bit of a state of, is it the chrysalis, whatever the, you know, the worm to the, or the, it's a caterpillar to the butterfly kind of thing. Partially obviously due to the pandemic and shelter in place. And also just, you know, and I know we'll get to this after leaving my startup, I kind of lost a sense of direction and connection actually to the Bay area, because that had been both so much of my identity. And also, at least for me, starting a, a startup was like going to be like a seven year or longer journey. And so my whole headspace was around, you know, being in this marathon. And so when that, that didn't work out, I guess I kind of, you know, I was a bit shell-shocked and just kind of like, I ended up going on a year walkabout actually, where I kind of just left the Bay area. I didn't know what I was doing. I had one speaking gig lined up in Lisbon at the beginning of 2019 and went 
without really knowing what I was going to do after I had like one month planned out and, you know, put a blog post out there saying, Hey, I'm, I'm leaving the Bay area. Where should I go? What should I do? And, you know, it was stage diving on, you know, onto the internet and, you know, people caught me. So I ended up with a bunch of different destinations and places to go all around the world and within the U S and when I came back, like literally I'd come back from India where I did a 10 day, um, silent Vipassana course, which is no joke. I mean, I was like sleeping on a concrete bed and, you know, meditating every morning at 4am for three or four hours. Anyways, I came back in February, the next year, 2020. And of course, right as everything was starting to shut down and, you know, within a couple of months, found myself living in Oakland, California, and just kind of, I guess, hunkered down. So I would say for the last, it's been over a year now, I'm actually leaving my apartment next month. I've been consuming just a crazy amount of podcasts, a crazy amount of content, like, but I, I don't feel like I've been doing that much, you know, I will say, you know, you asked me, what are my other interests? Like I'm into like cocktails, I'm into food, I'm into like a, a bunch of just sort of experiential things, but yeah, I, I think I'm in a, yeah, sort of emerging you know, with the butterfly wings, all awkward and shit. Like I've never like flown before. I'm like, what are these things that are coming out of my back? Like, this is not my body. <laughs> so it's not a great answer for you, but that's kind of how it feels. No, that's I good. I'm oh, sorry. I always say it's like the, the baby deer or baby giraffe. Or like stand oh, yeah, up right. It's like, whoa, legs are really weird. I'm on stilts. Down. What are these stilts? <laughs> yeah, I know. But I think it's cool that, you know, you're about the experiences and like getting to know things, getting to know yourself better. And like, I think that's what it's all about. Like, you know, when we're here in the entrepreneurial journey as well, like it's about learning, getting better and understanding everything around us and ourselves. So you're just doing it yourself in a different manner because you've done it in like the business world already. And you're still doing you know, it. Here, here's, what, here's what I'll say, because I think it's actually, it's an incredibly important point. One that I wish I'd kind of maybe gotten the the memo about like earlier in my career, but like each of us, and some of this may sound hokey and strange, I'm just like, you know, riffing on these ideas, but um, each of us does have the ability to sort of sing a song in a sense, and there's discordant harmonies, and then there's sort of harmonious harmonies, of course, and maybe that's redundant, but as, as I guess, as I went through my career, I had this idea that work was supposed to be hard and not enjoyable, and that's why you got paid for it, whereas the thing that you enjoyed to do you know, your hobbies or stuff that you were naturally drawn to. Well, it, it didn't make sense to mix, you know, money and payment for those things, because then it, then it became sort of a corrupting influence. And then you would sort of be selling out and doing the thing for money as opposed to doing it for joy. And I think what's been really useful in my journey has been to recognize one, the fallacy of, of that idea. And two, that if you, especially now that we live in the internet where you can connect to so many people that want to see you to, you know, and want to hear your song, whatever your song might be, then it's actually kind of, like important for each of us to figure out what that thing is. Like, what is it that we, and I, I'm not a singer, so, you know, I'm sort of like using this just as a metaphor, but once you find that tune that you really like and you just lean into it and you, you know, really develop it, people want to hear that from you. They want to see that from you. And you're the one person in the world that can really offer that. So the fact that I, I had that tension for so long and was resistant to aligning my interests and my talent and like my thoughts and ideas with also my profession or my successor, like a startup or building the thing that I want to build or see in the world. Um, it actually, I think really, I mean, there were headwinds and there were good headwinds in a way. Cause you know, it's sort of like training on a super tall mountain or something, you know, and then competing down at like sea level. It's like, you're sort of at a competitive ad advantage because you already have a bunch of things working against you. So the fact that I kind of did so much stuff up until now 
without trying to bring money into it. And in fact, use that as a competitive advantage in some respects now gives me a place to integrate those things. And anyways, I just, I liked what you were saying about, you know, that, that journey of self-discovery so that you can actually align better with the world around you and then organize the world around you to, to recruit the world around you to support whatever it is that you want to achieve. I think you said that much more elegantly than I did, but thank <laughs> you for <laughs> giving me some credit for that. <laughs> sure, sure. It was your insight. So, it, you know, just want to <laughs> yeah. reiterate, reiterate what you're saying. <laughs> so uh, before we get into all things to do with hashtag and rough up, like maybe tell us about your experience at Google and Uber. Like what, what did you do there? And what was it like working for those different companies? Yeah, I mean, I do think, and maybe this is like both hindsight, uh, the benefit of hindsight and hindsight bias. I'm not really sure. But to me, there's kind of a, a either a linear progression or an arc with everything that I've done in my career. And of course, maybe it didn't sort of make sense at the time, but I was sort of both, you know, drawn into things. And I, I like to use like a sailing metaphor a lot where there's a lot of like tacking sort of back and forth and you kind of go where the wind is and sometimes it's slow and sometimes it'll pick up and, you know, you just have to be like ready for gusts and a lot of my career, I think, was punctuated by those types of gusts. So I guess I'll just try to do like a quick summary because again, in my mind, it kind of makes sense. When I, so my background is in communication design and UI, UX. I was always kind of building on the web since high school, which, you know, is ancient history. Like, you know, back when we had papyrus and we're, you know, writing in front page. And so I don't mean papyrus, the font, because that's a terrible font, but <laughs> I, you know, I, I came out to Silicon Valley after I left, you know, college, after I left Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and this was in 2004. So this is like right after the dot-com bomb had gone off and all the people with money had left. And it was just kind of like the nerds and the geeks and kind of like the weirdos and freaks uh, that rhymes who are still out here. And I kind of instantly found, I think, my tribe. These are people who, you know, love the future, love technology, love building things for other people, but we're kind of also social outcasts because of how much we were into all this stuff. And anyways, I found that initial group. I started volunteering for the Mozilla project, as you mentioned. I participated in the, in the launch of Firefox. I was one of the few designers that was working in the open source world. And so I was this strange peacock like character, you know, I, I'm not going to call open source developers pigeons, but you know what I mean? Like I was very that's like not esoteric, uh, strange. I was just bizarre. And, and the one hand that like, as this other, as this semi outcast, like sort of nosing my way into this other place, it forced me to really become observant of the people around me and the way that they communicate and the language they use and how they talk and what, you know, passes for reasonably good ideas versus like, oh, there's that designer going off again on things that, you know, should be able to be done, but it's completely un unrealistic to, you know, implement. So I really had to like learn to, I guess, challenge my ideas first, and then I could present them to like a broader audience because I didn't want to get, you know, told no, like all the time that was, you know, that was really defeating. And so anyways, after launching Firefox, you know, I just, it, it seemed obvious to me that the web really was going to be a social platform and the web as a architecture had been designed entirely around documents and around serving the um, educational market and the military market. And and also, of course, the office and enterprise world. And I was like, well, the internet actually can power so much more in terms of person-to-person -person interactions and communication and so on. And so I started another browser that was built on Firefox called Flock and was trying to build a concept of people 
into the browser. It's funny, I had a conversation with actually the one of the PMs over at Zoom and he sort of, I knew him back in 2005, was alluding to the fact that Zoom actually is kind of like a social browser. It sort of puts people first and, you know, and I, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Yes, we finally have achieved this, achieved this like, you know, 15 years later. Anyways, so after trying to build Flock, what I realized was that the internet hadn't been built with protocols to support the representation of people or activities or, you know, things like likes or, um, adding friends, just all that vernacular didn't exist. So spent the uh, next period of time kind of trying to think about what types of formats and protocols were necessary to enable that, not really as an engineer, but as someone who was like a product designer or thinker, realizing that you need, had to create these enabling technologies to power the stuff that I wanted to build. And so, you know, after a year of Flock, I left and then worked on this as kind of like my open source, open standards work. And out of that came protocols like OpenID and OAuth and ActivityPub and stuff like that. And as a result of that work, that's how I ended up at Google. So hopefully you can start to see how there's this progression. So Google was like, oh yeah, Facebook's going to eat our advertising lunch. We need to have a competitor. And so they launched a product called Google Buzz and that launched maybe within two or three days after I joined the company. You know, they hired me as a developer advocate, which I was probably totally unqualified for, but nonetheless, I ended up in that place and the Google buzz launch, you know, basically was blown. They tried to build a social network into Gmail, which was not a bad idea, but Google just was so close to itself that I didn't really understand the way that people would perceive seeing, you know, your friend and social statuses in a very private context, of course, the inbox. So they had to shut that down and they spent six months kind of retooling and reconfiguring and actually like re like building up a pretty big team within the company to focus on that. And so while all that was happening, I ended up taking out over or, or launching the Google developers platform, which you can find at developers.google.com. And the reason why we needed that was because I wanted to bring together a community place for people who identified as Google developers. And up until that point, Google didn't really think they needed a developer site. And I was like, yeah, but like Facebook and Twitter and these other platforms have it. We need to have it too. And so I launched that. After I launched that, I switched roles. I became a UX designer and became responsible for designing the Google profile and aspects of Google sign-in. And then after three and a half years, I got really disillusioned with the Google Plus project and what was happening there. I just didn't think it was built for the right purpose. So I left. I did some work. This is in 2013, 2014 on digital art like pre-blockchain on this platform called Neon Mob and also this 4K photo or high art display called Depict. The former or rather the latter is still around. So you can go check out Neon Mob. It's sort of, it's unfortunate because they haven't embraced NFTs, but it's pretty cool. Depict is no longer around. I then, let's see what happened. I think, oh, and then I ended up at Uber where I was on the developer platform team. And essentially the way that came about was a friend of mine who I'd sort of been a nemesis of in the social networking days, which I won't go into, basically recruited me. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I could work with my nemesis. That's interesting. And so he basically brought me on to kind of build Facebook connect for cities. At least that's what I thought we were going to do, which I thought would be really cool. And to explain or unpack that a little bit, like Facebook connect, of course, was a way to bring things like Facebook identity and your friends to third-party apps platforms and services. And then you could like build stuff as third-party developers. So wouldn't it be cool if third-party developers could build or people, citizen coders, hackers, whatever could build stuff out of like, you know, municipal APIs, you know, you could see what's happening with traffic and you can sort of like, I don't know, like there's just a lot of potential there. And the government was one of the last places that, you know, had never really embraced open APIs and that kind of innovation. So it seemed like a great opportunity. But Uber was a very different place uh, than, let's say, Google. It was a much more cutthroat environment. It was much more competitive. So I only lasted about a year. And 
after I left, that's when I got started on the startup. Because while I was at Google, I'm sorry, Uber, I became very interested in voice assistants and bots and conversational software. And I was like, well, either Uber needs to build a conversational assistant or I need to go build one myself. And that's kind of how I ended up going down the path of starting my own company. Right, there's a lot there. You asked about can Google I, and Uber, so hopefully yeah. that puts it in context. Yeah. <laughs> can I can I double click on some of the open source yeah, stuff? Please. So yeah. can you? Just, I'm sure a lot of people know it, but for the people who don't, can you just give yeah. like really briefly what open source is and why you're drawn to it, why it's so important? Yeah, there's a bit of historical context that that probably will help. I think both people understand the battle that open source had to engage in order to become legitimate, and then to put it into context and in how it is both perceived and utilized today. So I would say when I got involved in it in 2004, the primary way that software was developed and distributed was through proprietary software that wasn't really shared. So essentially you'd get sort of a binary or executable and you didn't really know how it worked. And so the idea, especially for like a company like Microsoft was like, we're gonna solve all of your software problems. You buy all your software from us and you just trust us to make things work. And what open source suggested was a different and alternative participatory way for people who are using software to one, understand how it worked because you could literally look at the code and see you know, what was working and what wasn't. Two, you could look in the code and see where something might've been broken if it wasn't working for you, right? So it's like, oh, here's this thing that it's like, I'm trying to do this thing and it doesn't um, support that. And then three, building on that, it allowed individuals to contribute to an open source project to build functionality that they thought was necessary or, or useful for themselves. And from a, I would say it's like co-opetition as opposed to competition. So you're actually supporting each other and you're building towards this whole where the sum is much greater than the parts. So in other words, like I could build a little app that does like a stupid thing, but if I have 15 people all working on the same project and we're all contributing, then we are working in the economics of abundance as opposed to scarcity. And so the fact that we can harness all of that effort together in a union means that we can each lower the incremental amount that each of us needs to do, but actually benefit much more greater than the value of the contribution that we put in. So that's what Firefox, that's how Firefox came about. WordPress is an open source project. Drupal is an open source project. Um, and there's a number of open source projects that of course exist and persist to this day. Now, when software was one, simpler and two, more likely to be downloaded than streamed or used as kind of as a service, getting access to the source code meant that you had kind of a built-in secure or a not security, but like insurance policy that if the company went bad or was acquired or shut down a project, you'd be able to take that code and continue working on it yourself. So it was also a really good way of engendering trust. Not only did you get the transparency of knowing how the software worked, but if anything went wrong, you'd have the ability to continue using it after the fact. Now that we move more to the cloud and the integrations between APIs, and things like that are, I think, more important or central to software. And you can just, you know, have cloud hosting sort of spun up. It's a little bit less of an insurance policy because you have to really know how to deploy software and run, you know, a bunch of shards like all around the world for performance and stuff like that. But nonetheless, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's open source that allows you to download the software to see how it works, to learn from it, and then contr to contribute back. And that model of just organizing work in general, whether it's digital or whether it's physical, or just conceptually, you know, where also there's transparency in terms of who committed changes to a project or who is to blame when things go wrong, I think it's like just super valuable and useful. And the ethos of that, I think really inspired a lot of the work that I did and the things that I was able to achieve. Yeah. I, I would argue also like 
open source is closer to a global optima, right? Mm. It's generally yep. more secure. It generally builds like things that are needed more because if it doesn't, then the community just branches off and builds a new branch of the project. Right. Um, but at least in theory, from a political perspective, totally. Right. Mm -hmm. I would say that it's a lot harder for projects to be forked successfully than you might think, because you still have to organize um, and galvanize popular sort of dissent and also take on the responsibility of continuing to fund that development once you've branched off. It certainly has happened. It's happened several times. And there's very significant projects that have had forks in them. And, you know, the original project actually might have died because all the great developers moved on to something else. So, I mean, I think you're right. Like it is in a way also more biomimetic in the sense that it sort of does kind of map to genetic mutations where a project sort of comes to a, a fork in the road and then both can continue to be developed. And you see this actually, whether it's with, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, there's a number of forks that have happened. And, you know, there's still things like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold and, you know, Ethereum is coming up with another fork. And so all of those different forks in the road literally kind of allow multiple, I guess I would say, you know, futures to be explored while still having the same sort of origin and learnings from that. And what's cool is then you can actually see which ones actually, you know, work out in practice versus, you know, like in a proprietary system, you're not, you're probably unlikely to support two different code bases that are competitive because it's just too many resources. But in the internet, you know, there's an abundance of people that can go and take on those projects and see which ones actually make sense and work. And then also if it goes down a path, let's say even for several cycles and you realize, oh my God, we made a terrible mistake. Like we have to go back. At least from a source code perspective, you can actually go back up the tree and then pursue that other branch. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's a really interesting concept that everything is more open and transparent these days. I mean, you can even see it with like the build in public movement. I was going to say build in public sort of builds directly off of the open source ethos, right? Where at one point, the idea was to keep all the things that you were doing private and secret until you were ready for like the big reveal. And yeah. the reason why you needed that big reveal was because you had to sort of demonstrate your authority or your execution prowess or whatever. And again, that, that's because we were looking at and trying to emulate behaviors from the corporate world where there were so many resources. But increasingly, the problem is not so much about the execution. It's about the commitment to continue to improve over time. And what building in public does is it actually provides almost like a, a visible ledger of your work. So you can, I mean, I, I tell this to people who I work with on Product Hunt on their launches often, like they're worried about launching something and not being good enough and then blowing it. And I'm like, actually, what you really should think about is what are you gonna launch now? And then come back in six months and launch the new version or the new increment or whatever it is. And then you can point to the previous launch where the thing sucked and it didn't work. And now it's got some, you know, like polish to it and you can show that journey. And to me, that's more both endearing, but also demonstrates that you've been working on this problem and you're committed to it as opposed to someone who like built this in a weekend and yeah, maybe it looks great, but you're gonna forget about it because you've got other stuff to do, you know, next week. Yeah, it's actually interesting because like, you know, the premise of the show at the beginning, it was Nick and I, we bought a small business and then we're gonna build it in public. And then as we slowly started getting like these guests that come on, like we kind of just lost track of it. And when we started posting about the different episodes, we would get called out by different people saying, hey, where's the build in public episode? We right. wanna hear about what happened. And right. we were surprised, like, we didn't think anything of it because it's like, oh, it's just a small business. We're like buying and changing things around, but people loved it. And it was one of our most listened to episodes. So definitely speaks to like how people want to learn and understand how, what's going on. I mean, the simplest, you know, and I, 
well, we're just going to go all over the place, which is fine. But I mean, this is exactly how the hashtag like came to be. So a lot of people like want to know, like, you know, how did that happen? Like, oh, did you work at Twitter or something? And I'm like, no, I, I never worked at Twitter. I was an early user of Twitter. I was there early enough where it was possible to kind of set the direction of the service through various contributions or just conversations. Like, you know, I, I knew a lot of the developers uh, on the team, as well as people who are building on the early API for Twitter. And I mean, the hashtag is such a good example of the build in public model where, you know, not only did I sort of write up a long blog post, which was just, you know, put out there, like who's the guy that had the theses and he, I don't know, it was an M name in the religious wars or something a long time ago. Anyways, he like, you know, pounded the, the door with his 13 theses. doesn't matter. Anyways, I felt a, a little bit like that where I had this realization that people were trying to make the experience of Twitter more relevant to their interests. And the way in which we'd conventionally solve that problem in social software was to add groups. And the problem with that on Twitter was that Twitter was largely an SMS based service. So how do you say that you want to post into a group when all you have is 140 characters? Literally, that's it, right? Now, Twitter gave you a set of, we called it microsyntax. So a little bit like command line commands so that you could do different things. So for example, if you sent a text message to 40404 with a, a character like D and then a username and then your message, that would be a direct message to the username that you supplied, and then it would be sent as a private message. Now, if you typed more than 140 characters, the rest of your message would leak out as a public tweet. So obviously this is like problematic, but uh, imagine trying to teach people to like use groups in that context, and they couldn't even get their private messaging correct. So whatever it was that I was gonna come up with to solve that problem had to be something that was like really easy for people to discover and to learn, and then most importantly, to emulate. So. Build in public provides those opportunities to see someone else, you know, move, you know, their business or their body or their mind or their priorities in a certain way. And then they can emulate that, or they can watch and see what the outcomes are, see where you guys mess up and then do something different. Right. So essentially we're lateralizing the education process by allowing other people to observe how we do things and why we do things. And the better you are at kind of showing the pressures um, and the considerations in the moment that are guiding you to move in one direction or another, other people may then pick that up and then choose to follow the same path or deviate and do something different. So it's, I think it's a really powerful moment, you know, for, for building stuff. And then you start to realize that the problem actually, once you've built the thing is far less about the execution and more about distribution, more about customers, more about relationships, right? Because software, although building good software is still hard. Software is largely a commodity, just like capital is a commodity. So you're looking for things that, are, that go further down the value chain and that are harder to, or more rare or scarce in the environment, because, you know, you could literally like build a React native app, like, you know, over the next week or something and launch it. And it could be great, but no one's going to know about it. No one's going to find it unless you've actually built up some visibility, you know, and you have people that are rooting for you and they want you to win. Yeah, it's a great point that you've made where it's more of an economy of follow through than authority. Yeah, yeah, I, it's, it's a mix. And I would say that for those who don't have authority, because like the way I look at it too, it's like a little bit like compound interest. You know, the fact that I was born in the year that I was born gave me this huge competitive advantage when it came to joining web 2.0 platforms and then just sort of accruing compound interest over time by being, you know, early. So I have authority simply because I'm old now, you know, whereas younger generations who come up and, you know, start their new Instagram account or their new Twitter account, 
how do you build that, that sense of authority, that sense of visibility, that sense of presence, except, you know, by getting the reps in and just showing someone who you are and what you do. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a transitional generation in many respects where we were still learning what was okay to publish and what wasn't okay. And, you know, what, like, does it make sense to put it all out there or not? And I think that uh, a younger generation has grown up watching us and watching my generation and figuring out what does make sense to publish and what doesn't make sense to publish. And a lot of it, you know, I mean, it is an overused word, but authenticity does derive from, you know, authority and from integrity and from presence and from also growth. So how do you demonstrate that you're capable of learning and how do you show off or I don't want to say like show off, but how do you bring people into the, your moment of ignorance and then your transcendent of that moment into one of non-ignorance or of, of knowing. And that's super powerful because that, that can be really, really risky. And certainly in past cultures and societies, if you showed some sort of weakness, then that would leave you sort of outside the group or liable to be ostracized. Whereas today, vulnerability and then, or offering vulnerability and then showing the strength that you have to overcome moments where that weakness could have been taken advantage of, but then you surpass it is a great way, I think, of demonstrating actual like long-term strength and durability. Yeah, I think yeah. there's like a lot of more openness about talking about failures and how failures end up being learning lessons to, you know, precisely. And you know, like I've tried to build so many different businesses, I think four or five different ones, until I finally had one that was successful that was like completely unrelated to anything that I wanted to do. It was like a brick and mortar business. You're just like why, how did this happen when I'm trying to build online businesses <laughs> the whole time? Of course, that always happens, Murphy's Law. But yeah, no, exactly. Well, but it also comes down to like how you define success and whether or not you take the, you know, the models and the templates for popular models of, of success kind of off the shelf, and then you pursue that. And then again, like when it comes to the song that you're able to sing, is it actually like in the right key? You know, like like the goals or the the success models are based on what other people have already achieved based on the songs that they sing, you know, effectively. And so for me, going down the path of open source was almost like a, an uneconomic decision. It was pursuing like the development of software and technology, not from a, how much can I make perspective, but how much can I impact perspective? So when it came to writing up the proposal for the hashtag and then socializing that idea and then encouraging third-party developers to build and to adopt the idea, I was proactive in reducing my ownership stake in it. I socialized the ownership of that. I literally like wrote a post on Quora, like, well, why didn't I patent this idea? Because I was like, if I patented it, then that means that I have a monopoly on this idea, which is government protected and for 17 years. And then everyone has to come to me centrally to get a license to use that concept. Now, maybe I you know, make some money or I charge for it along the way, but that would have impeded the adoption and use of that idea. So it was more important that more people used it with as little friction as possible. And that by the end, if people did adopt it, then that would be the success because it becomes a tool of culture generation. So I think it's just important to have that in mind, right? Like whose model of success are you pursuing? Why, what are you hoping to get out of it? And is it actually aligned with your ultimate goals and what you want to achieve? Yeah. Why did you end up doing yeah. brick and mortar then? What was your model of success? 
Okay. <laughs> Since we're jumping around. <laughs> so one of my best friends, he was really good at building brick and mortar businesses that weren't located in our spot here in Vancouver, BC, Canada. And we were just, he said, Hey, like, let's build a business. He just sold his last business. So I was looking on trends, listen to my first million. There was a trend article or like a topic about Instagram galleries went and decided, all right, we got a space. Let's build an Instagram gallery here in the middle of a pandemic, intelligently enough. Did it in June or July, does pretty well. Like I think in the last 12 months, we generated about 300,000 wow. in revenue. So we're nice. pretty happy about that. And we did what do you it charge for, what is the business model? It's just like entry. So like you go in, oh. there's natural virality. Like ticketed. Yeah. Ticketed. And we, oh. we do online bookings in advance. We've gotten like weddings. When you say in there. Instagram gallery, do you mean like, like a place where there's all kinds of cool stuff to like take your photo in front of? Yep. Or, so, okay. It's not so like artwork from Instagram put on the walls, like a conventional art gallery. No, 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 no. Okay. It's it. great. So like, well, I unpacked makes, that suitcase. <laughs> so what makes it different from like some of the other galleries that are here, they use a lot of like, I don't want to call it cheap, but maybe they are cheap, like things. Like the ice cream different. gallery or whatever, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. We're not that. Like we photographs actually, well, but it's like not a great experience. Exactly. Maybe. So, we work with local artists who are here who mm. painted murals across like Vancouver, even around the world. And we're like, Hey, we want you to come in, make something and like paint against a wall where someone can like interact with it and look like they're fighting a dragon or they have like they're surfing or something. But then at the same time, my business partner, he's smart enough and like handy with his hands that he built like a sideways room, a room where it looks, make you look smaller, big. Oh, yeah, nice. And so nice. We're, we're like first of the kind that's here mm. and we've actually got inquiries for franchise and stuff. So it's been pretty cool experience, but I think what I'm most proud of is that we went and we did it. And I used a lot of the online e-commerce marketing skills that I had from the past into that business. Cause I don't think a lot of brick and mortar businesses do that. Mm -mm. No, well, and, you know, I think that's actually, so, so two thoughts come to mind, you know, one is, I think that's really valuable and interesting because for us to like flip the model coming from, you know, digital first to the web first world, and then bringing those principles to brick and mortar is actually the reversing of the tide, right? Whereas you had a lot of people who are brick and mortar first coming to the web and trying to do merchandising and things like that with like window shopping. And like, you had these like gross homepages and like all this stuff for a while, because like every other medium, we take the previous medium and try to like cram it into, oh, I froze, cram it into the, the new medium and it makes no sense. So you get to come in and be like, look, I'm digital first digital native, and I'm going to build an outpost from the internet in the real world. And then I'm going to market it as though it's a digital space or a digital thing. And I find that's a really great way to do it. I mean, in a similar way, I guess that's how we started the coworking movement because just as I'd said, like, you know, coming out of the open source world, I, I wrote a, a, a blog post in 2006 saying that I wanted to create this, what I call the cult of the vagabond hackers. So basically like people who go around anywhere in the world and find a place to drop into and work from where there'd be internet. And just by virtue of, you know, essentially at that time, we didn't have the concept of like working in public, but out of working in public or contributing to open source projects, you'd be able to walk in and someone would know exactly everything that you'd done. And they'd be like, oh, cool. Like I want your kind of people here or your personhood here and you can chill. Uh, or, you know, maybe it's transactional and, you know, you pay something or whatever. And so with the first, we started our, our first co-working space in 2006, it was called the Hat Factory and completely ran it into the ground. Like I had no idea how to run a businesses. Like, you know, we, we put it on the far East side of San Francisco and there was like no public transit and it was just, it was ridiculous. And it was, 
it was okay, but we sort of ran it like communists and nobody paid the rent and it was always late. And so we were like, okay, this is not working. So after three months, we shut it down. We took a little bit of a hiatus and then we started up another place, which was run more like a business. And this is called Citizen Space. And the idea of Citizen Space was that we would rent out desks, you know, for a pretty low amount of money. We had this environment that we designed with like, you know, nice renewable bamboo floors and these green walls. And I painted the ceiling black and we had these pendant lights and, you know, it was sort of an expression of, I don't know, at the time, my aesthetic, which was, you know, dark, probably and brooding, but we used the space to do what we called accelerate serendipity. So we had a drop-in space that was free for anybody to come into because at the time there were a bunch of third wave coffee shops that were around, but they wouldn't let you plug into the wall. So, you know, and back then batteries were even worse than they are now. So you'd be working for like an hour or two and then like, you know, or maybe 30 minutes and then your battery would die or they wouldn't allow Wi-Fi. And of course, back then you couldn't tether your phone. So they were, they were doing all these things that were antagonistic to their customers because they didn't want them just sitting around. So we're like, well, this is dumb. We like the coffee shop vibe, but clearly the economics aren't working. So why don't we create a space that's like a third space, a permanent space where some people who rent can leave their stuff and other people who drop in can sort of just be around other people. And that's where the co-working concept came from. And so we actually incubated SoundCloud and we incubated, I don't know, four or five or 10 or I don't know, a bunch of other companies back then. And what we did was, you know, you were asked to franchise, you know, we were also asked to franchise and given experience that I'd had with this bar camp concept, I was like, I'm not going to create a franchise and then own all that and charge people for my model, I'm just going to give it to you as an open source project. And I want you to take it. Here's how much we pay for everything. Here's how much money we're losing, but here's sort of like the upsides and benefits. And we want other people to run with us. And so we started a community around it. It's the co-working group that's on Google groups. Now it's, you know, 15 years, 20 years old. I don't know. It's getting old and just kind of pro 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 promoted and proposed. We got people to take on the idea and to build it out themselves without having to, you know, go down the whole franchisees concept. Because in the internet age, you don't really need franchises in the same way that you used to. So I was, again, more interested in having other people set those places up to maintain them and manage them for their own communities so that someday when I travel the world, I could just, you know, find a spot to go in. Turns out my walkabout year, how many co-working places did I end up with all over the world? So I basically like, you know, me and my friends who started this thing, were a lot more interested in the cultural production and creation of these types of spaces than about building a franchise business like we work and then having to go through that process of, you know, monetizing and saying no to people and breaking things and, you know, whatever. So, I actually met Adam yeah. Newman once, by the way, I, I went to his offices in New York once and I think he was really worried. He was worried that I was like building some, you know, dark horse competitor or something to him. And I kind of walked in the room and it's so funny, right? Cause he's like the, the we guy, you know, and he owned, mm. owned the trademark for, we already talked about trademarks and like kind of sat down. We had this conversation. He asked me a bunch of questions, basically sizing me up and like wanting to understand the, what, I guess the ambitions and, and thoughts that I had about co-working. And I think within 15 minutes realized that I was not a competitive threat and basically, you know, dismissed me out. It was like, I was like, oh, okay, that's it. Cause I was like, oh, we can like work together. And maybe there's like a co-working visa thing that we could do. He was not interested. And I was like, all right, fuck off, bro. <laughs> so well, you, you didn't get the podcast. It's true. I haven't told that story very much. <laughs> so you didn't get the magnetic charm that he's supposed to have the, the way he, it was very clear. I mean, he's like eight feet tall and he's, you know, Jesus robed and he's got this whole I mean, but no, actually, in some ways, I feel like I was impermeable, you know, to his wiles because I, I didn't want the same thing he wanted. 
like he wanted power and control. And I'm like, I'm building community. Like, what's up, rah, 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 you know, whatever, like kumbaya. And he's like, no, I do the kumbaya on stage, you know, with tequila shots and like fucking weed. But like, I'm not interested in talking that stuff right now. This is supposed to be business. I'm supposed to be crushing you. And you're like wanting to hug me. And I'm like, I got different success metrics. Like, you know, what can I say? He didn't know what to do with me. So I think that's why he's like, all right, that's it. Right, you know, see you later. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, so we wanted to ask you a little bit about the Y Combinator Molly. So, you know, yeah. I read that you founded that company or you co-founded it and you got accepted in Y Combinator, which is amazing. I think that's like a lot of people's goals who are founders. And I sort of eventually pivoted to Squad App. So, I mean, yep. It's kind of interesting because you talked about like the bots and like, you know, that intellectual AI type of thing. And like the ideal goal is to make information accessible by cross-pollinating information posted on various social media pro uh, platforms and centralized in one place. So like, instead of me going to research everything about you in this episode, I right. could have just pressed an app. That's my Molly bot. Yeah. Yep. And, and just figured it out. So kind of want to know, how did you come up with this idea? What was your experience in getting into Y Commander? And why did you leave the company about after a year? Yeah, all good questions. So I guess, I guess there, there are a couple of ways to understand that. You know, like I said, like while I was at Uber, I got really into conversational software. And the reason why I was excited about conversational software was because it just seemed like continuing to increase the number of sort of chiclets on your phone screen was not really going to be the way to scale software and accessibility long-term. You know, if I have to come up with a visual metaphor that is like an icon and remember what that icon is for the functionality of the app. Whereas increasingly as computers became, you know, better with AI, faster with, you know, understanding language, at some point we should just be able to express what we want to the computer and the computer can basically take care of it and figure out how to route the request to the proper, whether it is an app or a service or something. We are still in this paradigm and probably will be for some time where, you know, you, you sort of download software as a program and then it, you know, has a little bit of real estate that takes up, you know, on your home screen as an icon. And then either you learn to search for it or, you, you know, have muscle memory for like where it might be. And you have to like hunt and tap and peck. And it's just, I don't know, it just, it seemed like that was not going to be the way computers are going to be used in the next 15 to 20 years. So that was part of the interest and excitement. And I knew that everything takes longer than you expect. And if the hashtag took probably seven or eight years to kind of get off the ground. Then similarly, something that's like higher tech like this is going to take longer. But if you start building the machine learning models now, specifically for how humans ask questions of each other, and you can model that for, you know, an assistant of sorts, then we would have a competitive advantage by starting when we did. And that was the thought. The other thing was that going back to what I was trying to achieve with the flock and building the social browser, it occurred to me that one of the pieces of unfinished work that I'd started uh, back in uh, 2006, 2007 was something called the DISO project, which is D-I-S-O project for distributed social. And the idea was through those formats, those technologies and protocols that I talked about was to be able to decentralize the social web and make it possible for people to use whatever software they wanted to sort of connect up to this meta social web. And you could just sort of broadcast your updates to people who are subscribed to them. So very similar to, you know, RSS and, you know, feeds, but adding in additional layers like verbs and indirect objects and stuff like that. So you could model the types of interactions that people were having. And when, you know, Google kind of went the proprietary route, that idea was still kind of out there and swirling in my mind. And I was finding increasingly that 
as these social platforms were copying each other's features, like this is around the time when Instagram copied Snapchat stories, it was like, okay, now I have to have an app for each one of my different groups of friends. And I have to go through kind of each one as almost like a separate newspaper to figure out what the hell's going on with everybody. And now, because there's no more kind of like static feeds and the content expires every 24 hours, now I've got to actually like literally be inside these apps on a regular basis to know what the hell's going on. So it just occurred to me that I don't have the time to stop and read each one of these pieces of content from each one of my friends, but a computer is really good at consuming information. So if I could just pipe all the stories and all the stuff that my friends are producing into this agent that just sits there and listens and reads and sort of strings together trends and stuff that's happening with my friends, and then is trained to notice significant moments or experiences or people gathering or whatever, that then I could have a conversational relationship with that agent. And so that agent was Molly. And that was essentially, I guess, the story and the pitch. Now, of course, you run into a bunch of problems. You know, one is that those APIs that those platforms offer are not totally open. So you actually can't pull in all the data from your friends. There are privacy concerns and they're just functional concerns. So we went about trying to create ways of capturing and gathering that information from people, which started out with a few messenger bots. Um, and we built an iOS app. And then we built a website, we built a bunch of stuff. And anyway, through that process, we applied to Y Combinator once and we got rejected. And that was because our idea really wasn't kind of fleshed out enough and we didn't have any traction. So we went back, we kept working on it, applied again for winter. Then we got in, we spent whatever the six or eight weeks or three months or whatever it was going through that process. And just through that process, it became very clear that the co-founder dynamic between the three of us was really unhealthy. And you know that there's plenty to sort of unpack about why, but ultimately just coming to that realization right around demo day, it just sort of became clear that, you know, once we had raised more money and we were going to start hiring, that that dynamic was going to inhibit our ability to really one, move fast and to hire the best people because they'd sort of feel, I think, dysfunction. And so it kind of came to a head where it's like, well, one of us has to make a decision about, you know, who stays and who goes. And I guess we decided, and I decided that I would be the one that would leave and sort of would leave the company with them. And so that's, I guess, how that happened. Oh, wow. All right. That's a long story, but no, that's great. Like I was totally interested and I I guess it makes sense because like, obviously for the long term, you're thinking like, all right, you know, for the duration of the the business or any future, like it could be a long-term thing to make sure that it's the correct, correct synergy together. Right. Well, I think also the other thing that was part of the dysfunction was just about our, our visions and the way that we wanted to get or, or, or realize that vision. You know, most of my success, again, had come from not really worrying about money and building things that were culturally, I guess, interesting and where traction was a much slower, you know, kind of plodding process, right? Like I didn't have any dashboards for, you know, who's using hashtags and like, is it up and to the right? You know, I didn't have dashboards for who's adopting co-working. Is it up and to the right? It was like slow and spotty and bursty. And it just kind of built up this momentum over time through getting clearer about the narrative and the story and the message that we were presenting. And then just constantly, you know, kind of building community, including people, connecting people. So building a software startup is very different, especially when you take venture capital, because suddenly now you've entered a horse race and there is a set of finish lines and you want to get to that finish line fast. They can get the next round of funding to move on to like the next race. And I guess I'm just built more for marathons, you know, and so I think that was also different. You know, my co-founders 
but wanted, I think, to build things that were smaller, faster, a little more, you know, sparkly, but weren't necessarily, in my view, necessarily always like solving for that long-term vision and taking the time to do it. Yeah. This, this is a bit of a tangent. Are you familiar with projects like BitCloud? Yep, I'm on BitCloud. BitCloud I'm is very strange um, and very interesting. <laughs> it's very self-referential. I do find that yeah. a lot of... Now, I guess I'll separate two, two thoughts. You know, one is that there's a lot of meta commentary that goes on around new social products. So there's the, the sort of organic conversations that occur that are just kind of like using the product as maybe eventually it'll be used. And then there's the conversation about the product that's happening at the same time. So I think like Clubhouse is a good example of that, where you kind of couldn't have a Clubhouse room without talking about Clubhouse. And I think BitCloud is very much the same thing. I find that most of the people that I experience on BitCloud are mostly either talking about BitCloud or building on BitCloud or speculating on how much money they can make on BitCloud. And so as far as a general purpose social platform, it's odd, you know, because it started out by putting the value of creators at the center, as opposed to figuring out first, what are they doing in this community that is providing value? So it's starting Twitter at year seven and introducing like this uh, monetization piece without first getting people to really love the act of, you know, tweeting and sharing and interacting with each other through a, I guess, a uh, an organic social graph that built up over a very long period of time. So I'm familiar with it. Is there, was there something else you wanted to ask about it? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I was just curious what your general thoughts were. Cause it's, you know, the idea of it as it is right now, it's basically just a Twitter clone, right? But the larger idea is you can host your own nodes of BitCloud right. and like, you know, yep. kind of do whatever you want there. I'm curious what your, your thoughts are. Cause you're, you know, kind of interested and involved in the, the yeah. decentralized social networking. Yeah. Um, Totally. And I think there, there are some interesting questions. What is kind of useful about BitCloud is that it does start with kind of an expression of how the underlying tech and the concepts can be used. So, you know, if you're someone who posts, you can be again, rewarded with like, you know, diamonds or likes and social validation. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty, you know, familiar, but like you said, there underlying it is like a, a blockchain powered kind of technology that allows people to build on that. And if a bunch of people start using that chain, you know, to register new types of activities or verbs or objects or whatever it is, then that could grow into a pretty interesting vibrant place. I think there just needs to be so much clarity on what healthy and useful participation is to model it for the community. So then they can build around those ideas that if you leave it a little bit too open or open-ended, then people kind of show up and they don't know quite what to do. I think when it came to things like the, the bar camp model, which was 2005 and sort of, you know, bringing the unspace or unconference model to events where essentially the people who are there are the, they're the participants and also the speakers and the event kind of writes itself based on what people want to talk about as an organizer of those events. Like my job was essentially to sort of orchestrate a fire brigade, you know, or a fire bucket brigade, whether or not there was a fire. Like people would show up like, oh, I heard there's a fire. And I would find immediately like a shovel or a bucket or like, you know, like a bottle or something like here, take this and then pass it to that guy. And there's going to be another bucket, you know what I mean? Like, and then they just be sort of in a circle and they think that they were all doing something. But until we figured out where the fire was or whatever, like you just kind of want to give people useful things to do so that they're participating in a way. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, but like, I guess when I showed up to BitCloud, it just seemed like it was a way, it was like a popularity contest and that just didn't feel so great. Now, that said, I was also following Mastodon for quite a while, and Mastodon actually uses a bunch of the technologies that me and my you know, friends built and worked on. But decentralization is always hard to create coherence. It's sort of, I don't know if it's not 
it's actually intuitive, but it's sort of unintuitive to think about. You're like, oh, a decentralized Twitter, that totally makes sense. But the whole point of decentralization is to foster innovation through generativity. In other words, to allow a thousand flowers to bloom and to go through a kind of you know, genetic evolution where new things happen. But when something is not centralized, then you know, if I post you know, like a product, let's say, to a Mastodon node or to a BitCloud node, and it's got a bunch of like, you know, price information and photos and all this other stuff, and it passes to one of the other nodes that doesn't know what a product is, then it just renders it as a link or as sort of like an attachment that doesn't know how to handle. So there is a fundamental tension in creating decentralized, innovative platforms versus centralized platforms that kind of retain coherence over time. So email is great because it has a few basic primitives that really haven't evolved. And that's created a lot of stability, but it also means that we're really frustrated with email because they're really bloated and people have dumped a bunch of stuff in and Gmail has tried to think, add things like Gmail actions and other types of embeds. But of course, unless all the other email clients in the world upgrade, now you've got broken experiences left and right. And so that's why email has become kind of a notification channel for browser-based you know, software and apps, because in the browser, at least, you can do a bunch of different things, but you kind of have to send the notification first as an email and then invite them to go to the website where they can have the full experience. In a, in a different world, we could actually unify those things. And that's kind of what mobile does to some degree. You have a notification and then it opens up the entire app as opposed to opening the notification in an inbox. Right, right. Yeah, that's a very interesting take on it. There's a fundamental communication problem underlying it with the, the looseness of protocols. Well, the browser really didn't, wasn't designed for like two-dimensional or not, not two-dimensional for like notifications and, and messaging. You know, those things were always separate. It was, you know, there's a bunch of documents on a web server someplace, make a request and the server responds by giving you, you know, the document. And then if you want to do messaging, well, you have an app specifically for messaging that's designed about, you know, getting a bunch of messages, pushing them to the server, then fans them out, grabs it from the other servers, pulls it back in, and it's like a relay. So mm -hmm. the architecture of these things made sense in a world where we didn't have as much connectivity. And so they kind of fall apart gracefully, but it really inhibits innovation on those platforms and formats. Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. I'm like just listening here with my eyes, like deer in <laughs> headlights. Like, all I'm right, sorry, has yeah. your brain like exploded? Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I'm not like the the tech guy. Like, I know a little bit of tech, HTML, and like mm. that's the most that I know. So I'm just really just listening and absorbing pretty much everything. I really involved. don't know that much beyond it. I just have like mental models. I think that I've picked up along the way by frustrating developers to explain it to me like I'm five. And <laughs> and to me, ultimately, it has to come down to like an image in my mind, and that's kind of just what I'm trying to describe. Yeah, fair enough. You know in the you were we're kind of running over time but i want to make sure you're okay to like stay on and still talk right so yeah let me check yeah i'm good okay yep. cool we did talk a little bit about the hashtag but really i want to move on to like product hunt because i think that's a really cool sure. place where like a lot of founders are at and they're like building their businesses off of product hunch and so what i want to know is how did you get involved with product hunt in the first place how did you end up building up your following as a hunter and now being to the point of number one hunter. Like that's kind of a crazy concept to think about. <laughs> it is a crazy concept. It's very strange. Well, so for those who don't know, Product Hunt is, you know, a place where I think some of the, the best and most interesting, you know, applications, products, software services, tech related things are shared to a broader community on a 24 hour leaderboard that refreshes every night at midnight PST. And once you're on that leaderboard, 
it's like a race to get the most engagement in order to kind of, you know, climb the charts and end up at ideally, you know, top five, top 10. Um, and it's, it's stayed pretty consistent with where it started back in 2014. So I joined in 2014, but honestly, somewhat reluctantly because I am so um, allergic to popularity contests. And I've seen so many of those things over time where, you know, they're really hot and really exciting for a little while. And they use exclusivity to kind of get people in. And it's just kind of, you're just like there to be seen. And like, that's just never really been something that resonates for me. But despite my um, reluctance, you know, for as long as I've used technology or software, I've always been excited about finding new things and sharing them out however I could. And there was a platform that I previously used called I Use This. And it was simply an index that would allow you to kind of like list things that you used, specifically apps, and you could vote on them if you like them. So Product Hunt has the same core concept, but it was sort of a modern take on it. And the other big difference, and I would say this is sort of part of the evolution of the web and the web platform as a place to build and launch companies and products, was that Ryan Hoover, the founder, did two things really well. One, he just created a very, I think, healthy ecosystem where it was really about supporting people who are building things. And for those who haven't built things, I don't think they realize, you know, how much their negative feedback can really like hurt like people's real feelings, which is in, in some ways, like in contrast to, again, like that earlier era of the web where most emails came from like no reply at, you know, email domains, because these companies were these opaque monoliths that you really couldn't talk to anybody at. Prototype really flipped that on its head, again, from a digital first fashion and said, look, the people who are building these things are available to you. They are makers. Let's bring those makers in here. Let's celebrate with them, you know, the thing that they built and let's give them feedback. So the product hunt value prop was both about sharing cool stuff that was happening and also hearing from the people who are building it, what problem they were trying to solve and why they solved it the way they did and what excited them or motivated them about it. So I got involved, you know, pretty early on, roughly speaking, and it just became kind of an outlet for me to share stuff that was going around. I mean, it was not a super huge or popular platform, but it was just, it was again, very similar to like the first group of people that I met when I came out to Silicon Valley. Like we were kind of all excited about the future and building cool shit for like friends and family and other people and then talking about it. And so over time, it just became this ritual where I try to find something like every day to post. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, I'd been, like I said, on a walkabout, traveling the world, giving talks, suddenly I had like no income. I, you know, and I was like back in the Bay area and running out of money again. And it was like, well, now what do I do? And I realized that I'd been, again, this is like where I started to lose that delineation between what I would do for work and what I would do for play. And I realized that all this advice and feedback that I've been giving people through Twitter and DMS and other places like that on how to launch on product hunt could become kind of a little, you know, consulting, you know, business and opportunity. And in fact, I launched a product called Superpeer in March, just as the pandemic was getting going. And it was essentially kind of a merger of Calendly and Zoom, but in the browser with the ability to charge for like hourly consulting calls. So I set myself up on that platform and just was like, hey, if people want to talk about launching, like here I am, come talk to me. And it turned out that there was a lot of interest and a lot of demand. So, you know, I, I guess like it was never, and I, I think the thing that I want to impress upon people for some reason, I don't know, it was just that it was never like a goal or an intention to become like the top product hunter. It just happened. Like it happened over time, just like a YouTube influencer, certainly the ones who started out early on, they just were like posting videos because they love to do it. That's their medium. That's their format. That's what they loved. And for me, you know, you can only hunt up to two products a day. 
And I think in the next week or so, I'm going to hit 3000 launches. So you really can't, I mean, you'd have to go back 1500 days, which is what five years to catch up to me at this point, presuming I keep going. So it's kind of dumb, but I have this like artificial, you know, lead just by virtue of again, being old and, but I love it. Like I love talking to people, what they're building and I love bringing my own experience and what worked and what hasn't. And, you know, what do they see that I don't see? So it also like allows me to both live vicariously through other people's experiences and also kind of surf the future to see what people want to solve for, what technology is enabling them to solve for it. It's the best way I think to just stay up to date on what's happening. I think I love the fact that you want to hear and understand about everyone's uh, different projects and you want to help enable them and make them better, which is amazing. You know, like I wonder if there's, is there like a podcast for that where you like, you go on to product hunt and then you like hunt a product and then you talk to the founder about like their business. That'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. If only that existed, right? Yeah. <laughs> Free idea for you. <laughs> Even though you don't have enough ideas there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not too dissimilar from what you guys are doing, right? And I think that's, I, you know, so one thing that I have started to do are these live streams um, because product has become a lot more competitive. And I think it used to be possible to just launch something and then presume that there was enough audience that you know it would pop, right? Of its own sort of gravity. But increasingly that's not true. You have to run it like a Kickstarter campaign where you gather your own community and they come out to support you. And in fact, that's part of, again, like we talked about before distribution, you know, and the hard part is actually having customers show up for you. So that's, I think, a major difference in terms of the strategy for launching these days. Yeah. It's not just a kind of like, oh, I'm just going to throw it over there and like hope for the best. It's like, no, actually you've got to like bring people who want you to succeed and to help you out with that. Yep. I hear you for sure. Nick. Okay. Yeah, so I want to make sure we're kind of respectful of your time. So we, we can either close it here if you want, or we can talk a little bit about On Deck. Maybe we should talk about Republic. Yeah, I think Republic would be a good one because it's actually a good segue because you were talking about crowdfunding, right? right? Yep. So yeah, let's talk about Republic. And just a little note, shout out to Daniel from Daniel CH, we call him, from uh, mm -hmm. the SaaS Reddit. And Does that mean so, that he's in Switzerland? No, he's in the CH? UK. Oh, I don't know. But yeah, anyways, he, I think you said on that Twitter spaces and you said, oh yeah, like joining Republic. And I was like, I don't even yep. know what Republic is. And so <laughs> I was like, this is super cool. So after did a bunch of research, almost, it's almost like a Kickstarter style platform, but it's for businesses, which I love because, yep. you know, prior to like Nick and I buying a business, I actually did tons of research on Kickstarter trying to figure mm -hmm. out like how to launch on there. How does it work? All the algorithms and stuff. And then you jumped on board of this and I'm like, oh, I got to learn about this because Nick <laughs> and I are building products and we got to figure out how this algorithm works and how we get on board of this. So tell yep. us your process about like one, why did you join Republic? Tell us what you do there and you know, our understanding behind it. Yeah. So I think Republic is, is super interesting and it's, uh, I suppose I have joined and I've only been there like, you know, a month now, so it's still relatively new, but it feels like I'm joining at the time when it makes sense, given all the things that I just talked about working on where money had been so much, a uh, sort of part of the equation that I just didn't really want to get close to. Cause I just felt like I, I mean, I basically had like this broken relationship with money, which I've recently sort of worked on and addressed and. Now I feel quite confident, I think, about it and understanding how it works. We can get into that in a minute, but you know, all that sort of to say that joining now 
enables me to take a lot of the things that I've done, the lessons that I've learned and the ways in which I like to help people, and then to bring uh, a financial element of support into that. So Republic is a crowdfunding platform largely for companies and founders. So just like you can use Kickstarter to launch, let's say a specific product, you know, that's that your company makes, and essentially it's demand side generation. So you're getting a bunch of people to put a bunch of money up front to say, yes, I want this. And if you get enough people to say, yes, you want this, then you get the funds to go build the thing that you said that you're going to build. And then, you know, maybe it's a bit of a journey to get there in the execution process and all that, but nonetheless, it's a pretty clear, I guess, value exchange. It's a little more transactional. You know, you put your money in and anywhere from three months to like seven years later, you'll get the thing that you, you know, paid for or something. And in some cases, I'm still waiting for my stuff to arrive. So, you know, Kickstarter has an interesting track record. <laughs> Anyways, so what Republic does though, is it takes that same kind of economic activity, but applies it to companies and businesses. And the reason why I like this is several fronts. So the reason why Republic can exist and why it couldn't exist before 2016 was because the Jobs Act created new legislation that allowed what are called unaccredited investors to participate in, I would say, riskier um, investments like startups, right? So an accredited investor is someone who has a million dollars in assets or more, either with themselves or with their partner, or maybe they, they're a trust fund person or crypto, who knows, whatever. They can basically like state to the government that yes, I have enough money such that if I make a bunch of risky bets and all of those bets go to zero, I won't become a ward of the state and become dependent on government welfare. Because what the government doesn't want you to do is to basically get into gambling and then become something, someone that the taxpayer, taxpayers all have to take responsibility for. So if you're accredited, the idea is that you have enough money that you can blow some or you're sophisticated enough to know what is a good bet and, and not a great bet. So what the regulations did in 2016 because of the housing crisis that occurred was it said, actually, what we need to do is make investments overall more transparent and for everyone to be able to have a better sense for what are risky and what are not. And so it created this whole tranche of crowdfunding rules around companies that as long as companies were willing to commit to a certain set of disclosures about their traction, their success, their you know, business prospects, and so on, that unaccredited investors or less sophisticated investors or people who are just getting their start or don't have a million dollars could start to make smaller bets on those companies. And thanks to the internet, a platform like Republic could aggregate all that demand together in a single line item in your cap table as a company, you know, basically that lists all the people that have invested in you and take care of dealing with getting all the sort of signatures and all the other paperwork done so you can get the money from those, the crowd investors and just move forward. And so at one point, I think crowdfunding had, there was sort of a veneer about it because it was not well understood. And because those who I think went down that path often were thought of as being either unfit or not in a great enough place for a certain venture. And that I think has changed. And that's one of the reasons also like why I decided to finally like join this year was because two companies, Gumroad and Lorda Clarlo and Backstage Capital, actually there were several of them launched on Republic. And not only did they, so, so the rules changed in March that allowed individual companies to, to receive up to $5 million in investment. So it's no longer capped at a million dollars. Now we're at $5 million. And because of the creator economy and because of crypto and because of Robinhood and because of all these other platforms that are enabling retail investors. In other words, people who are, you know, just like, like you and me, folks who are not professional investors, but participate in the markets. Now there's a familiarity with the idea of investing in things that you believe in or that you want to see succeed. 
And that's what the Republic platform offers. So I participated in the, the Gumroad launch on Republic before I joined. And Sunil raised $5 million in, I don't know if it was like five hours or five days, but it was like an incredibly short period of time relative to thinking about like, if you are a startup and you go raise from VCs, that can be six months to a year for every round. So raising, and yeah. even if it's five days, is an incredibly fast amount of time because those companies that have built that community and have that connection to their community, that community, those community members want to invest in your success. And as a business owner, as someone who's creating a business, you want to remunerate and create benefits or you know, possible upside if you succeed. And that is a way of aligning the incentives of your customers to share your business, to share what you're doing to their you know, followers and friends. And to enjoin them in the in, in your mission in a way that's not just you know buy our software, buy our SaaS, like your customer, great, right? We're gonna pay our VCs when we get acquired or when we do our next funding round. So to me, that alignment is so powerful and only enabled by the internet, only enabled by these new regulations, only enabled by payments and what's happening in the creator economy. So that's how this all kind of comes together for me, where I can take a lot of the work and advocacy that I was doing for makers on Product Hunt and go beyond just like marketing and narrative and now provide them with a channel to raise money. Nice. I love it. It's almost like you're helping the founder in every part of the journey. And like, you're really- Now that I've gone through all the parts of the journey, right? Now I can be like, oh, actually, this is a good way to go. Yeah, seriously. That's awesome. And I had a chance to look at the site. And I think one of the greatest advantages of using the site is that you know, it says if there's someone who invests in you and they have like certain skills or network, they can bring that to the yes. table, which is huge. This is the value add investor concept. So one of the things that I really want to work on now that I'm uh, with Republic is exactly that. And the concept being that not only can people obviously invest in you monetarily, which, you know, that's one way to participate, but even if, and we've actually had a couple of stories like this where, you know, there was an investor that I suppose, I think they invested maybe 500 bucks in a skincare line or something that was on Republic. And that person identified themselves as being a value-add investor. And when the CEO of the company that was invested in came back with an ask, they were looking for, they asked for help in getting, let's see, I guess like product evaluation or I forget the name of it. Anyway, some kind of verification process for cosmetics in India, you know, and he'd been running like all these dead ends, couldn't find a place. They're all super expensive. This $500 investor came in and basically like had a connection to a cousin or an uncle or something that ran one of these places and was able to get them, you know, service for like, you know, 10 K, whereas everyone else was charging 30 K. So that one $500 investment ended up being worth, you know, $20,000 and $500 uh, essentially right in value because of that connection. So that's the other thing to think about. Of course, a lot of people look for value-added VC investors, like, oh, I want to have connection to that person's network or whatever, but that's like one person. And if you believe Dunbar's number applies to most people are connected to maybe 500 people. Well, if you have a crowd of a thousand people, now you've just, you know, a thousand X, the number of resources that you should have available to you. So it just seems to me that increasingly I, I, I figure in the next five to 10 years, it's going to be completely normal, if not like the, the mainstream story for people to allocate a certain part of their cap table to this type of crowdfunding raise, because there's just so much alignment. You'd be like foolish not to. Why would you not want to provide upside for the very people who help you to succeed and tell you that they want your business? Yeah, that's great. Is it, is it difficult to like apply, like say Nick and I built something, is it like hard to apply and like be a part of this or you have to go through any qualifications? 
Yeah. So I don't want to say that it's easy. However, if you go to, I believe it's republic.co slash apply, you can list me as your referral if you want, but the way that it works, I don't think I got a kickback or anything like that. It's more like I will then see you <laughs> in the Slack channel when your application comes through and I can be like, oh, okay. Like, you know, maybe this person is someone that I know or whatever. You should probably like reach out to me beforehand and just let me know that you're going to apply. And then I can actually like <laughs> be the shepherd. But point being, one of the ways in which this legislation is able to work is that these companies that go for crowdfunding do need to be a lot more, I guess, like transparent and forthcoming, sure of what they're doing, because it is a type of security, right? So it's essentially saying there is value in this. And here's why we believe there's value in this. We're going to like talk to you about our number of users and the sales that we get and stuff like that. Versus there's a lot of startups who go the VC route and they really don't have to do a lot of disclosures. They really don't have to go through that gauntlet of due diligence because Oftentimes VCs are just either following the herd or they're investing in a previous founder. And, you know, a lot of times the, you know, the traction might not be there, but it's like, oh, it's the idea or it's the, you know, it's the person that's the team, they'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with less sophisticated investors, you want to lay it all out for them. So they understand exactly what they're getting into. So there is that process for equity crowd funders. And this is actually one of the things that I find so promising about this is that Republic does a really good job with due diligence. And the deal ops team that we have internally is like super sharp. They're really supportive. They want to help you succeed, but they also know that you have to be very responsible with the numbers and what you're putting down on paper as what your business really is. So it's really, I don't know. I mean, I went through YC and YC is super exclusive. Republic's admit rate is actually more exclusive than YC. So you do have to like be a legit business, but you're also asking for a lot of people to support you. So if you are confident about that, then you're probably a good candidate to pursue the application process. Good to know. We'll have to actually think about this really hard instead of slapping <laughs> something together over a weekend. And there, there are platforms that are a little bit more, you know, loose and, and open. But one of the things that I really, I think, admire about the company is the strength of their due diligence process. When I learned that and I learned why that exists, it just gave me so much more confidence in the model. And yeah, I, I don't know. I would encourage people to, you know, to consider it. And, you know, if, if right now is not the right time or if the numbers don't look good, you know, maybe eventually, you know, you can come back when things are rosier. And it's just, it's really, it's like I said, it's like training, you know, on a mountaintop and then running the race at sea level. I feel like if you go through the crowd equity crowdfunding process, that is a little bit about what you're doing. You know, you know that your, your stuff, your shit doesn't sink basically. Like you're in good shape if you make it through that gauntlet. And then if you've raised the money. So I just look at the companies that are on Republic and it's kind of like, I'm in awe, you know, cause I know what they've gone through to get there. Yep. Fair enough. So uh, let's Nick, do you have anything to add? I think we kind of want to wrap <laughs> this up because we're taking yeah. so yep. much of your yeah. time. <laughs> totally. Totally. This, uh, this is great. This is a tour de force. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> the, the thing that we love asking our guests, the final question is, you know, for all those founders and entrepreneurs out there who are trying to make a name for themselves, either getting into Y Combinator, getting into Republic, get their products noticed on product hunt by their number one product hunter. What is your advice for them? I think the folks that are the most successful, you know, it's, I'm not going to preempt myself by saying this is trite, but I guess going back to what I was saying at the beginning about like learning, like what is the song that you were designed to sort of sing and to move towards it and to incrementally kind of learn more and more about what it is that, that you really enjoy and love and to be unapologetic about it, even if people around you don't understand it. And the way that I would explain myself is for as long as I can remember, I've always really enjoyed helping people better use technology to improve their lives, largely by demystifying it and by making it more accessible. And sometimes that's meant that I need to design different products or different features, or sometimes I need to talk about 
the motivations or reasons why things are the way they are. And not with, you know, coming from a place of like anger or frustration, but to say the previous context in which these things came from had this kind of logic that applied to it. We're no longer living in the world where that type of gravity or that type of logic works. So let's rethink this and do this in a different way. And that to me has tended to be very empowering and it allows people to realize their own agency in their own lives. So I guess, you know, what I've learned over time is to become or to lean into my preference for being useful and for being helpful. And that's really gotten me to where I am now. I mean, the fact that one of my core values is being useful and helpful means that sharing people on product hunt was simply to help people find their audience to like recognize the great stuff that they've built that I find value in and realizing that other people would find value in that too. So it was never again intended to, you know, become like the number one product hunter. And that was like the thing that was like my five-year roadmap. It was just like, how do I support people who don't know how to market their stuff? And having worked with developers, so many of them build such great things, but they have a hard time translating the value of what they've done to other people. And so I sit in between and help them tell their story. And that helps them to be better at kind of singing their song and kind of getting it out there to the world, to a broader audience. So I guess like, maybe that's the I don't know, the most the sort of metaphorical way of, of thinking about this, but whether you're going through YC or whether you want to get into Google or Uber or whether you want to, you know, apply to Republic, the more or like the closer you are to like that core note that you were designed to play, the easier it's going to be for other people to listen to what you have to say and then to support you. Like that's the easiest thing that I've, I've discovered, I think. That's great advice. Really, I like that a lot. So, you know, we took a lot of your time. <laughs> really appreciate you staying on for this long sure. period of time, but this is one of our, this is awesome. Like you, you just yeah. jumped into it and you talked to us about everything. We really appreciate it. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. We, we loved having you on for all those super fans and early adopters listening to buy and build podcast. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, we'll see you again. Thanks guys. You can find more episodes and a link to the community of Buy and Build Podcast at buybuildpod.com. Remember to like, rate, and share with your friends on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Join us again next week as we continue our journey. We'll see you in the next one.